Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 15. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Phariseeism, while so blatantly effective in the days in which Jesus walked the earth, is alive and well today. Therefore, the Lord has preserved this passage that it might be obliterated in the hearts of those who have legitimately trusted in and continue to rest in the efficacious work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, as you know, in this passage, but he would, and those in the surrounding regions should have known enough about the sacrificial system to know that it pointed toward some sacrifice on into the future, which in fact would be sufficient for the sins of men to be forgiven. At one point prior to this, John the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of men. And so had they been unaware as to what Jesus came to do, they should have known at that point. It wasn't as if people weren't following John the Baptist, and it wasn't as if people weren't following Jesus Christ. But as we looked at at length and in detail last week, so much of what they were motivated by was not what he could accomplish in the heart, but what he could accomplish before the eyes. Right? It was, in fact, the miracles that drew their attention to him, but the miracles weren't the be-all, end-all. Let's look at it closely. Last week, we looked at the mercy of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. Jesus sought this man out, which is always how it works. If you read, see, understand, adhere to, subject yourself to the true anthropology of Scripture, meaning what the Bible says about man's heart. You remember that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, those who believed in him, because he knew man's heart. Who's he talking about? Those who had an insincere, superficial, non-salvific 
belief. So it's declared about Jesus that he knows man's heart. I don't know your heart. I know some things about it because of things you've told me, right? Same as me for you. You might know my heart better than I know yours because you listen to me talk more than I listen to you talk. It's not an unreasonable or illogical probability. But the better we get to know each other, the better we know each other's hearts. But we don't know each other's hearts. Christ knows the heart of man. Christ knew that it would take a substitutionary death of a sinless, spotless lamb in order for the sins of those who weren't spotless, weren't sinless, in fact, were utterly fraught with unrighteousness to be redeemed such that the miracle of salvation could be theirs. Christ knew that. He knew the condition of man's mind. Man doesn't know the condition of man's mind. He doesn't know the condition of other men's minds. He doesn't even know his own condition. But when he's reading the Bible, (laughs) when he's nurturing a legitimate biblical anthropology, at least he comes to the precipice of being challenged to believe what God has said about man's heart. Friends, beloved, please don't run from that. Please don't try to water down and whitewash what God has said about the natural-born condition of mankind, particularly in Romans 5. Don't believe the Christian psychologist who tells you you just need more self-esteem. You need less. You need to think much less of yourself than you do, and so do I. We have that unending problem until we go to the grave, until we go to heaven. Christ knew this about man, and yet he showed his mercy. He showed his mercy. He went and found this man, and he healed him. A man who for 38 years was engaged in the impossibility of paralysis, unable to move himself. This was part of the man's legalism. Listen, this might sound impossible, but I want you to apply this concept to your life this very moment. Whatever the most impossible scenario you've found yourself in is exactly what's best for you to find yourself needing to trust the Savior and stop being the person who thinks, well, I'm a multitasker, I'm a doer, I figure things out, I'm a problem solver, this is no problem, I can handle it. The person who describes themselves that way in the midst of impossibility is the legalist. And the result of the legalism of this man is that while God blessed him, Jesus Christ preciously, mercifully gave him healing, gave him the ability to walk, the man rejected Christ. So many, many people in the midst of being blessed immeasurably by God say, no, 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 i got to measure up. And by the way, I have measured up and people better take note. 38 years, same amount of time that Israel wandered in the wilderness. 38 years. Plenty of time for people to be convinced that this was, in fact, a real infirmity. Nobody's going to fake paralysis for 38 years. This man was healed. Everybody knew it was a legitimate 
healing. Jesus sought out this troubled soul, this man with a broken body and a broken soul, and he poured out his mercy on him. The second point we looked at last week was the mistrust of this sinner. While Jesus showed his mercy, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, at first glance, you might think, oh, he's just pitiful, right? He's just vocalizing the fact that it's a difficult scenario. Won't you please help me? Jesus says, you want to be healed. The appropriate answer is, oh, yeah. Instead, he places his trust He focuses on, he exposes the fact that his trust is placed in not only the water, but the stirring of the water. And the myth of the day, which unfortunately led to a scribe later adding to the text of Scripture, if you have a King James, you'll see the end of verse 3 and verse 4, it's not in the most reliable manuscripts. It was added by a scribe because of that myth that the angels would come down and stir the water. But don't let that scribal addition minimize the significance of the fact that there was some healing effect in the water. I read to you that illustration from President Roosevelt in a book that I had read when I was a kid where he went to Warm Springs and there was some kind of legitimate effect of those warm mineral-saturated waters on his legs and he was able to walk better the next few days and he went back there even during his presidency to gain relief and comfort from his polio but it didn't heal him. Christ healed this man. He healed him. And he took up his bed and he walked. It was a legitimate, complete, perfect, non-man-made healing. It wasn't even a natural healing. It was a miraculous healing. And what's the man's response? Well, I, I, I need the stirring of the water. That's, that's where my hope is. Had he not heard about Jesus... Apparently he didn't. The text of Scripture says that he didn't know who he was. He should have. He should have by now. If he had read the Old Testament Scriptures, he would have known that a healer was on his way. He should have known about the healer. He'd grown weary in his 38 years of paralysis and had a very skewed view of God's grace. But there's more to this. This mistrust reveals a trust in self. Let's look at it again. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am, what? While I am going. A clear indication that he was making effort on his own to produce his own healing, which was impossible. A paralytic can't heal himself. And while this is a literal true event with a real man, the fact is it illustrates quite well the reality of the natural born spiritual condition into which many legalists find themselves thinking they brought themselves by going. The sad reality is that while this man was painfully, and I mean very painfully, near four decades worth of pain involved in his awareness of his inability, he still wanted to rely on his ability. 38 years, a bit more than a generation, meaning that the overlap of generations would see to it that two generations would have sound observation of this reality. Two generations of Jews and Romans would see his affliction 
it would also be clear to them that this was an impossible infirmity. Had it been dependent upon him, he would have been healed a long time ago, and yet he's still wanting to lean on his own efforts. While Jesus is prepared to extend mercy to him and asks if he would like to be healed, the man answers a question that Jesus did not ask. He should have answered the question, do you want to be healed? Instead, he expresses his hopelessness as a result of the fact that his misguided hope was in fact misguided. He wanted some help to be able to help himself. And thus you have the phrase today, God helps those who help themselves. One of the most believable lies on the planet. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are helpless and acknowledge their helplessness. That's who God helps. And then in verses 8 to 9a, you see this miracle of Jesus, a true miracle. A true miracle. He takes a body with an impossible infirmity and he heals it. Something only he could do. This kind of work does not take place today. This is a miracle. Does God do great works through doctors and not through doctors? Absolutely. He sure does. I've experienced it. But when you have an impossible scenario, God does not change that in this era. You say, well, I want to believe he does. Why? Let me tell you something. If you will take note of the purpose of miracles in the Scripture, you will be perfectly satisfied that they ceased in the first century. You'll have no problem believing that what he does today when he does a great work is an equally great work, but he does not resurrect people from the dead. You know, you're in a car accident, you get decapitated, he's not going to restore your head to your body. That would be a miracle. He's not doing those kinds of works today. But what's equally important is acknowledging that he doesn't do that is that the works that he does do are equally great. The work that he would have done in this man's heart, the work that he will do in your heart, the work that he will do in someone else's heart through you is an equally great work, and it is rooted in the miraculous event that took place at Golgotha when he died on the cross. When, it, when the exchange took place, when double imputation happened, when his righteousness was imputed to the elect, and their unrighteousness was imputed to him. We call that an efficacious atonement. It worked. It stuck. It took. It wasn't a gamble. He came to save his people. And he did. He did. Or he says that he will in no way cast them out. Who's he referring to? Well, the text of Scripture says he's referring to those that the Father gave to him. So when that work is clearly accomplished in someone's life, who gets the credit? Not the person who says, you know, I just need a little help to go. I just need a little help to go, you know, to the Savior to get healing or to go to the Savior to get a soul restoration. It's the one who says, I got nothing. 
have nothing to offer. Jesus saves the repentant of heart, the broken of heart, the crushed of heart. Well, this morning we pick up halfway through verse 9 with point four. Point four, the unreasonable burden of the Jewish leader's legalism. Now, this burden is unbearable, but that's not the point in this text. You will see in this text that it is unreasonable, meaning it's illogical. It makes no sense. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Not an accident that Jesus is there on the Sabbath. Jesus came not only to heal a man, but he came to destroy the faulty view of the Sabbath. And this problem has trickled down even to our day. I I astonishingly had a colleague in ministry many years ago tell me about his church that we are Sabbatarian. What did he mean by that? Well, he means that Sunday is the new Sabbath. We don't believe that. We love the 1689 Confession, for those of you who know what that is, but this is where we part ways with our dear brothers who think that it's correct in that. The Sabbath is the Sabbath. The purpose for the Sabbath was to provide rest for man. It's a day of holiness. I had a Presbyterian great-grandfather, a fire and brimstone Presbyterian preacher. And the one story that I remember about him, other than the constant theological arguing that took place between him and my grandfather, was uh, that one day he went home from church to do some work on his farm and accidentally ran over his best pig. And therefore, he was violating the fourth commandment, and God punished him because of that. Um, It's a funny story, but it's not true. He did run over his best pig, but it wasn't God punishing him for violating the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment was for Israel. And just a cursory reading of the book of Colossians will convince you, I think, that you are to let no man judge you with regard to a Sabbath day. You worship on any day. Why do we worship on Sunday? The church traditionally has worshiped on Sunday. It's not a mandate but it is the tradition of the church. It's not the new Sabbath. It's Sunday. Why Sunday? What took place on Sunday? The resurrection took place on a Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection. We don't gather for the Sabbath. They're two different things. Much more on that later. But for now, just suffice it to say that Jesus, a number of times in Scripture, is referred to as the Lord of the Sabbath. So here are these Sabbatarians the Pharisees, who are attempting to communicate that he's violating the Sabbath. He could have said, hey guys, I created the Sabbath. I know what it's for. I know its extent. I know that its purpose was fulfilled. I know that it points to the penultimate Sabbath, which is heaven. The ultimate Sabbath is me. Your rest is not only in heaven, it's in me. I'm the Sabbath. I'm the rest that you're looking for. Don't think that you need to set an entire day aside to lay on the couch, which is some folks' motivation for their interpretation. Now, in Matthew 23, you'll want to turn there with me briefly. Matthew 23, the long, long rebuke of the Pharisees. We don't have time to read it all. Just a little bit of it, though, just to get the flavor for who these people are who place this 
unreasonable burden on this man. Matthew 23, starting with verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And you know what phrase we get from that passage. For they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So, what do they love? They love self. They want to be exalted. They want to be worshipped. They want to be known for their deeds. And their deeds, while intended to exalt them, showed them, in fact, to be Pharisees. Jesus said, listen to what they teach. Much of what they teach, not all, but much of what they teach is accurate, but what they do is wrong because they're not committed to the heart of the teaching. What they're committed to is their own applause. Back to verse 4 in Matthew 23 for a moment. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So their entire devotion is given to requiring of people what they cannot accomplish while they themselves aren't making any effort at all. They simply want to be seen for what they are communicating that they are accomplishing while they're requiring others to accomplish it. That is a working, kind of a lengthy, but working definition of Phariseeism or of legalism. And Jesus, as you know, says, woe to you. And essentially says, you're destined for an eternity of torment for what you do. When you do what you do, you make those who follow you even more sons of hell. Yeah, you're further sealing their destiny by what you teach them and by what you do. This, friends, this is what Pharisaical parents do. You know, some folks wonder why in the world their kids have rejected them and their kids have rejected the church and they've rejected everything that they've ever said and done. There ought to be some investigation under some loving pastoral counsel to determine whether or not those kids might think that their parents are Pharisees. It happens. It certainly happens. But they got the Sabbath all wrong. Nehemiah 13, 15 says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What were they doing to profane the Sabbath? It wasn't that they were working. It was that they were engaging in trade. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And as a result of a misunderstanding of the fourth commandment and and this indictment on the people of Israel, the Pharisees established 39 categories of additional laws in order to enable people to adhere to the letter of the law, while, as you know, they completely missed what? The spirit of the law. That's the nature of a Pharisee, to endeavor to be seen as one who adheres to the letter of the law, while actually requiring others to adhere to the letter of the law, while not lifting a finger themselves to actually adhere to the letter of the law. So they produce lots of laws, lots of rules for others, particularly those over whom they have some control, but they themselves are not committed to those rules. That's a Pharisee. The Mishnah, which was established around 100 B.C., merely codified the existence of 613 laws not given to Moses, but added unto Moses. Moses gave the law. It was pretty clear. Of course, it required spiritual guidance. But when these 613 laws were created, Pharisees created an impossible standard. That's what this man who was under a 38-year paralysis was imprisoned by. Think of it. All your life being told you must perform. Oh, how sad you can't perform. You're a paralytic. And so he would have no internal inclination to trust that someone actually has accomplished for him what needed to be accomplished. He would want to go himself. He had been taught that you must do what must be done for you. You must earn your way. William Barclay has some wonderful commentary on this passage in Nehemiah 13. He says, verse 15 makes it perfectly clear that what was in question was trading on the Sabbath as if it had been an ordinary day. But the rabbis of Jesus' day solemnly argued that a man was sinning if he carried a needle in his robe on the Sabbath. They even argued as to whether he could wear his artificial teeth or his wooden leg. They were quite clear that any kind of brooch could not be worn on the Sabbath. To them, all this petty detail was a matter of life and death. And certainly this man was breaking the rabbinic law by carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. His defense was that the man who had healed him had told him to do it, but he did not know his identity. Later, Jesus met him in the temple. At once, the man hastened to tell the authorities that Jesus was the one in question. The actual words of the law were, if anyone carries anything from a public place to a private house on the Sabbath intentionally, he is punishable 
by death by stoning. He was simply trying to explain that it was not his fault that he had broken the law. So the authorities leveled their accusations against Jesus. Was not the intent of the words of Nehemiah 13 to prevent people from working on Saturday, much less even Sunday. There's so much more to this matter of Sabbatarianism that's convoluted in so many contexts. We'll, we'll study this more, but for now, just know that Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath indicates further in our text, we won't get to it today, we will next week, that he says, I and my Father are what? Working. Clearly an indictment on the Sabbatarians, the Pharisees' misunderstanding of the purpose of the Sabbath. So this is an unreasonable burden. Is it unbearable? Yes, but that's not the point that we're seeing in this text. It's certainly unbearable. But the real issue is that it's illogical. It makes no sense. Why, why would you place a burden on a man that he can't accomplish? Why would you do that to him? Why would your response to his concern be, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed? For crying out loud, the guy's been a paralytic for 38 years. I mean, talk about a loveless response. Wouldn't it make more sense to say, Behold, you walk. Now this is a miracle. So you can see the predisposed interest in the hearts of the Pharisees to not believe that which was obvious. Wanting to do anything and everything to dismiss the significance of what Jesus accomplished in full. So we've looked at this unreasonable burden of the Jewish leader's legalism. Point five I want you to see the imprisoning guilt of a healed sinner's legalism. This is where it really gets problematic. It's a guilty disposition in this man's heart that leads him to respond the way he does. Verse 11 says, But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. doesn't show any gratitude. doesn't show any interest in the greatness of what Jesus accomplished, it is pointing the finger at someone else when the finger is being pointed at him. That's what legalists do. In the moment when an accusation has been brought, the only thing a legalist knows to do is to say, well, look at him. Well, look at her. Look at what they did. This can't be my fault. You say, well, what did he really do that was even wrong? Well, nothing in your book and my book, but in his book, what he did that was wrong was that he walked on the Sabbath. He carried his bed on the Sabbath. He knew in his heart that he had violated the law of God, which he hadn't, but his conviction being based in the 613 additional laws given on top of God's law, Moses' law, he was inclined to adhere to the restrictions placed on him by a legalistic leadership. And that legalism was how he lived. So rather than wanting to be stripped of, really liberated from that legalistic imprisonment, he clung to it. 
well, yeah, but it's not my fault. It, it was that guy, you know, the one who healed me. And by the way, he told me to take up my bed. He told me to walk. What am I supposed to do? Shouldn't he be praising him? Shouldn't he be declaring what the man in John 9 declared? Shouldn't he be worshiping him? Shouldn't he be saying to them, maybe you want to be his disciples, like the man in John 9 did? You know, sarcastic, but it was a good thing to say. Of course, their response was, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. And multiple times, Jesus proves they're not disciples of Moses. He says, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. Fast forward to chapter 8 in John, John 8, 58, where he says, behold, before Abraham was born, I am. They knew he was claiming to be God. They wanted nothing to do with him. They certainly didn't want the man who was healed of his blindness to tell them that it seems like you want to be his disciples. They made it clear. You're his disciple, we're Moses' disciple, and we are opposed to one another. In this man's commitment to his legalism, rather than declaring the great work that Jesus had accomplished in him, he instead gets defensive. Go back with me to Luke. Chapter 17, see a similar example of this in Luke 17, starting with verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. See, that's the right response when you receive a blessing from the Lord. The childish response is the response of the man in John 5. The response of this leper here is one of gratitude and praise. Verse 15, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. See, that's the right response. That reveals a spirit of gratitude. 17, Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, a non-Jew? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This man in John 5 shows no faith. He shows no faith at all. He didn't show faith when he indicated that he probably couldn't be healed because he couldn't get himself into the waters when the waters were being Stirred, it's very likely that the two inlets that led into that pool of water occasionally would create a whirlpool. Some commentators seem to think that there was a bubbling up underneath the water as a result of natural movement of the earth that led to the vibration or the movement of the water. And so the, the myth became that angels were stirring the water, and that's when the waters were most effective at producing a healing effect. Nothing more than a myth, of course. That's what his hope was in. That's what his faith was in. That's what his belief was in. It was something that he could bring himself to. 
But he couldn't. He couldn't. So you sow that statement for, for today. Let's look at that for a minute. This morning we will see that while Jesus grants merciful healing to a paralyzed sinner, the man remains committed to his sinful legalism so that we would not rest in our own self-righteous ability slash inability, but his sovereign mercy. That's why we're looking at this text. That's, as I've gone through this, as I've studied this passage, I believe that that is what the Lord would have us do that each of us would conclude that our self-righteousness is just that. And when there is an effort for someone to draw attention to that self-righteousness, that rather than being self-righteous, we might say, thank you for pointing this out. This was the loving effort on Jesus' part to expose the man to the fact that he could not heal himself. And where was his faith afterward? In the Pharisees. In the Pharisees. He showed homage to them. He showed allegiance to them. He wanted to give them satisfactory answers. Not my fault. Not my fault. It's this guy. No, I don't know who he is. He slipped away. But it's not me. I'm just sitting here. Made me walk. He told me to walk. This is an imprisoning guilt. It's an imprisoning guilt. The person who walks through his life thinking that all of his achievements are worthy of adulation, worthy of applause, doing everything manipulatively to draw attention to himself or herself for what is done rather than finding every moment to be an opportunity to point to Christ. Now think of how the Lord will restore the years that the locusts have eaten if a person would change his tune. After 38 years of trusting in himself, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years of trusting in self, in my previous ministry, it was not unusual for someone to come to me and say, Todd, why didn't the Lord expose me to the truth you're teaching when I was younger? I had often people in their 60s and 70s tell tell me that. Why is it that the Lord wouldn't expose me to this truth earlier? And here was always my loving, uh, intentionally gracious response. It was with the track record of of self-help, of self-esteem, of self-righteousness. A track record of claiming to know Christ because you pursued Christ with a track record of all that stuff, if God changes you now, the weight of those years that the locusts have eaten will become the weight by which God influences people around you because they will see the massive difference. That's what God does. When he produces that change, people are falling all over themselves saying, my word He's actually acting like a Christian, as if Christ accomplished his salvation and not him. God produces that change. And when he does, it's evident. This man, on the other hand, was driven by his guilt. And he didn't, couldn't achieve what the Pharisees required of him. Jesus did it. Jesus accomplished it in full, showing that it needed to be performed by an outside force. 
That force was the God-man, omnisciently and omnipotently performing a miracle that the man himself could not achieve. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. It was not yet Jesus' hour to communicate or to fully publicize himself as would later come. Now listen, there's, a, there's an intent here, though, that it would be publicized. The event itself was widely and publicly known. A crowd was drawn to the event. But Jesus was not yet of the mindset to be dealing with the consequences of performing such a a massive miracle. So he slipped away. But the man should have known who he was. Isaiah 35 verse 3 says, in prophetic expectation of the Messiah coming as a healer, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If he was a faithful listener to the word, if he was faithful in his devotion to God and his word, the moment he was healed, he would have said, prophet Isaiah told us this. This has to be him. I've been paralyzed for 38 years. I, I couldn't move. I tried. I'm moving. I'm walking. I'm carrying my pallet. God promised us, and he came through. My friends, the legalist takes credit for everything. He wants credit for everything. Yeah, I I walked, but, you know, I listened to the guy who told me to walk. I mean, I know I shouldn't be walking, but I'm walking. That's the legalist take on the work that God and God alone can accomplish. So we've looked at the, the imprisoning guilt of a healed sinner's Legalism, a healed sinner who ought to be, has every reason to be rejoicing and worshiping the one who healed him, and yet he's clinging to his works system. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Point number six, I want you to see the liberating admonition of the sovereign Savior's mercy the liberating admonition of the sovereign Savior's mercy. The Savior provides freedom. Emancipation from spiritual prison. You and I were imprisoned in our unrighteousness, were we not? Paul is clear in Romans 6. We were enslaved to unrighteousness. Slaves of Sin, mastered by sin. This is the indictment upon the entire human race. By federal headship, when Adam sinned, his sin was imputed to us. 
We inherited that sinful nature, and yet in Romans 5.12, we are told that we sinned, making us culpable, we sinned in Adam. And I would suggest that there are probably some influences in your life that would refer to themselves as believers in the ways of God, but you simply need higher self-esteem. Quite the opposite. You need a Savior. You need a Savior to save you from your condition. The admonition given by the Savior is liberating. He says, stop sinning. It seems oversimplified. It seems too simple, not, not enough. You know, Jesus, don't you want to give him the theology of the gospel? He's lived in the context of the sacrificial system his whole life. He knows that the Lamb of God would come to forgive sinners of their sins, to die for their sins and provide atonement. Jesus knew that the man had that experience. He knew that he knew that. And so he simply goes to him where? Where is the man? What in the world is he doing in the temple? Engaging in his righteous Phariseeism, in his legalism. He's back to the temple? Why wouldn't he be searching for Jesus, the one who gave him healing after 38 years of paralysis? He goes to him in the temple and he says to him, see, you are well. Is this what you wanted? You wanted to be well. You wanted to be healed. I performed a miracle. That's what you wanted, right? Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. And this is maybe the depth of our theology about this man. You know, don't look so much at the narrative about the man as you look at Jesus' description of the man. We should get our best narrative theology from what Jesus says about people. And here he communicates that this man's illness, his paralysis, was the result of sin. It's not always the case, but it is sometimes the case that an illness comes on as the direct result of specific sin. Now, all illness is the result of sin, right? It's the result of the fall. But that's not to say that every time you experience some kind of physical difficulty that you can trace that back to sin in your life. But it is to say that sometimes you ought to consider it. And it was certainly the case with this man. This is why every month in the Lord's table, I plead with you to search your heart to see if there be any offensive way in you. You know, to remove the log from your own eye instead of being the constant complainer who's over-concerned about the specks in everybody else's eye. Jesus is a liberating admonisher. 
he gives a clear warning. Stop sinning. And many times, some people simply need to be told to stop gossiping. To stop slandering people. Stop lying. Stop stealing from your employer. Stop doing things that you know are clearly wrong. That's what Jesus says here. He says, stop sinning. Sin no more. Could it be that some of the difficulties in your life are the direct result of your sin? Well, of course it could be. The question is, is it? You know, do you have embattled, unresolved issues where you truly cannot confidently say that you've done everything you possibly could. So many folks want to say that. Well, I tried. I took them to church when they were kids. Paul says, insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Here's a man who is trying to accomplish peace, trying to accomplish his own healing on his own ability. Sin no more. But something worse might not happen to you. In Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? Or to kill. But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Friends, that's how a legalist responds to good works. Oh, there must be something wrong with that. That's how a legalist responds when somebody gets saved. They do everything they can to point out their flaws. Put a microscope on every little detail of their life. Oh, well, he's not saved. I saw him sin. Glad I don't sin. You know, that's the mindset of the Pharisee. He doesn't lift a finger to obey the law of God. And yet he places this unbearable burden on the infant believer. pretends to be one who has fulfilled the law. How unimaginable that Jesus miraculously restores a withered hand. How amazing is that? And how equally amazing that the Pharisees respond with skepticism. Not only skepticism, but a willingness to destroy him. The one who is healing people all across the land. Well, seventh, I want you to see the hard-hearted blame-shifting of a healed sinner's legalism. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is blame-shifting if I've ever seen it. Eve does the same thing in the garden when God comes and says, hey, what's going on? Well, you know, Satan told me. And then Adam says, well, you know, the woman you gave to me, so he blames God. That's where blame shifting began. 
here, this man is following suit. He went looking for the Jews. Well, just so you know, I did the research. I figured out who the guy was. Here you go. It's Jesus, the man who healed me. He's, he's the one. So he sells him out. And he points those who would destroy him to him. Why? Gets him off the hook. Well, I've done my part. You know, I know that what that man did was wrong when he told me to walk. He told me to carry my pallet. And so I've got favor now, right? Because I went and found out who he was. And um, I've done my part. So we're good, right? Homage, allegiance to the Pharisees. What is it in a person's heart that chooses to interpret the loving call unto the freedom of forgiveness as a hateful accusation? What is that? What is it that is so imprisoning, so powerful, that it produces a willingness to cling to self when being exposed? It's the self-sufficiency of legalism. The belief that I somehow have accomplished what you're saying I haven't. How dare you? It's legalism. What is it in a person's heart that when his sin is addressed, he chooses to blame someone else for it? How does that go for you? When someone's brought a concern to you about your willingness to depend upon self rather than upon the cross. And by the way, you, you do that, and so do I, every time we sin. How do you respond to that? Do you respond to that loving admonition by calling it an attack. That's how it often goes. You call it an attack, and then you do everything to spin the circumstance to destroy the credibility of the one who is endeavoring to love you by bringing you to grips with your actual condition. That's what's happening with this man in John 5. His life is being exposed, and rather than saying, wow, I've been healed, surely this man can save my soul. Instead, he shows homage to the Pharisees by adhering to their efforts to place on him a tied-up, unbearable burden. This story has a tragic ending in so far as we know. Uh, we don't know what happened. This is a real man. It's not just a parable, right? It's a real guy. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us what happened thereafter. At this point, it's a tragic ending. But there's hope today for you. And there's hope for the people you know who are still breathing. Unless, of course, you're the legalist. You can't help anybody if you are. Check your evangelistic effectiveness. Do people run to Christ because you're running to Christ? In Galatians chapter 6, Paul boils down how this ought to work in our hearts. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And, th and then I love this phrase, and I think you do too. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's he talking about when he says bear one another's burdens? He's not talking about helping someone when they have a bad day. He's saying bear their sin with them. 
be like Christ who bore our sin. doesn't mean to sin with them. The point is deal with their sin with them. This is what the normal believer does. He checks his own life. He embraces accusations. He embraces the concerns. He embraces the corrections, the instructions, the rebukes, the admonitions. He loves that about the body of Christ. He longs for it. And so when he, he receives it, he, he finds it to be an opportunity that while another is caught in any transgression, he wants to find himself as a spiritual man or woman who would restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness because he has been restored in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Wouldn't it be great if this man had understood that? He was wanting to fulfill the law of God by going to the water springs in order to get some credit for his healing. Paul here would simply have us trust in Christ for having bared our burdens, but also to be willing to help others bear their burdensome, sinful, difficult life. You don't know why someone is engaged in the pattern of sin that they're engaged in until you spend time with them, develop a relationship with them, sacrifice for them, serve them, are willing to sit down with them and address it, and at some point maybe with others. Charles Spurgeon said, If you meet a sinner, do not turn your back on him as a Pharisee might, but help him all you can, for Christ helped you all he could If it should cost you a great deal of trouble to win that soul for Christ, gladly put yourself to that trouble because Christ took so much trouble to save you. A good brother said to me the other day concerning a certain boy that he was afraid we should never do much with him because he was of very corrupt origin. I said, so were you. He replied, I do not quite mean it that way. No, I said, but I do mean it that way. He or she who is a son or daughter of Adam had a corrupt origin. As we all came from that source, we are all corrupt. Do not ever say of anybody, that person is too bad for me to do anything with him. It is the genius of Christianity to select the worst first, and we should never regard any man as utterly hopeless until he is dead. As long as the breath is in his body, even if all the devils from hell were also in him, there is enough power in the Lord Jesus Christ to make the whole troop of them fly. And it is for us to attack those devils in his name. Jesus Christ, having saved us, the salvation of other sinners must be possible. End quote. Lord, for those who are yet in that state of paralysis and yet doing everything they possibly can to go, to do, to be, to change something so as to gain favor with you, Lord, liberate them from that imprisoning legalism that they too might invite, not only having been restored in some physical sense by Christ, but to be restored spiritually 
to embrace and enjoy the healing work that Christ does in the hearts of those who would simply trust in his efficacious work on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.